Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by SKP Creative. Are you having a hard time making social media work for your business? I'm a social media professional, so I know that it can be more than a little tricky to figure out on your own. So that's why you need to talk to the team at SKP Creative. They develop data-driven communication strategies to help your business grow and thrive. Visit skpcreative.com today to learn more and schedule a free social media evaluation for your business. SKP Creative, make it happen. This episode is also sponsored by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist for about 25 years and my kid's dentist too. He's an expert on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning, you know, without having to do the whole metal braces kind of thing. He's got my son Owen in Invisalign braces right now, and Owen much prefers those to traditional brackets. Um, They look better, they feel better, and they don't cut his mouth up when he's playing basketball. So he likes all that stuff, and we like it too. To learn more, visit shimendental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Today's guest is Alex O'Brien. Now, Alex is one of those guys who comes in with multiple stories to tell. And those stories take place in very different worlds. Now, locally, you may know him as the president and CEO of BOC Bank. It used to be known as Bank of Commerce. BOC Bank is a small, family-owned bank with a technology-first focus. But, at the same time, Alex is also a retired professional tennis player. I mean, like, a serious pro tennis player. He won 13 doubles titles, including the U.S. Open in 1999. In 2000, he was ranked the number one doubles player in the world. Now, after retiring, Alex and his family chose to return to Amarillo. He grew up here. And he launched his second career here in Amarillo. So we cover a lot of ground in this one. Here's Alex O'Brien. Alex O'Brien, welcome to the Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So I I know that there's a ton of things that we can talk about, but I'd like to start by just asking you how you ended up in this area in the first place. So tell me about growing up, your family, all those things. My family, my dad grew up in Amarillo, Texas, and so you know we've and, and my granddad also um, lived in Amarillo, Texas. So. So our roots go pretty far back in in the city, and and so growing up in, here in Amarillo was was a lot of fun. And from a family perspective, it's a really wonderful place to you know have a family and and to grow up in a smaller town where you can kind of see what's what's happening with your group and and keep a pretty tight knit family unit. Your your family has a long history in like ranching and cattle and stuff. Is, I mean, did, but you didn't really grow up. As a, a ranch kid or in a rural environment, you were in Amarillo, right? You know, it's interesting. My dad's been in the cattle business for a really long time. And so when we were younger, we did actually go out to the ranch and work on the ranch and have some funny stories. We would show up to work in our tennis shoes and the cowboys would say, howdy girls. And this is my brother and myself. And, you know, so we would show up to do a hard day's work and they were already making fun of us. And, but it was it honestly, looking back on it, I'm very thankful that he had us do that because it, you learn a lot about the Cowboys, you learn a lot about the culture of this area, and you learn a lot about work ethic. And, and you know, he had me drive a, a hay baling tractor with a spear on the front and two forks on the back. 
And I did that for several weeks one summer. And, you know, when you drive back and forth and you unload two, you pick up two, you unload two, you pick up two, you unload two. You know why farmers see UFOs after a while. And, yeah, you know, because it's there was no air conditioning back then. You know, I feel like an old guy walking uphill to school, but there was no air conditioning back then. And so you got in that tractor and you got in there about six and then got out about six. And it was uh, it was legit work. And, and so looking back on it, I feel really thankful that he had us do that. We used to paint feeders, paint fences, you know, do kind of work that was needed around the ranch. And, and so we did, you know, I wouldn't say we were crazy hard workers. We weren't grinding it out, but, but we did some hard jobs that were jobs that I look back on and think I'm glad I did that. Do you ever, you know, think about like in high school or anything? I mean, was, was there ever any expectation in your family that, you know, this is what we do, that, that maybe you would go into cattle or, or something someday? Yeah, so my dad has a lot of pride in what he does and a lot of pride in the cattle business, and he is a cattleman at heart. He loves the business through and through, and and he really digs into it and, and wants to learn more about it and is always reading about it, and and it was a part of our life growing up. And, and you know, my brother's in the cattle business. I own part of his company, and, and so ostensibly, you know, I am in the cattle business to an extent, but after my tennis career, coming back to Amarillo, uh, I came back to be in the banking business. And it was also a brainchild of my dad's, this, this bank that he started and, and programmed. And so, you know, I think he's probably happy that I'm back here and, and working with him. And, and, you know, he's the biggest owner of the bank and, and was previously on the board of the bank, but is no longer involved in the day-to-day activities of the bank or anything. But, but it is nice to have him around to go to and seek advice and, and help on He's a real good deal guy and a good trader. So either way, had you gone into cattle, had you gone into banking, you you still would have been in a family business. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, the bank is owned by my family, and so I report to the board, and so you know, I'm essentially reporting to my family, and now they're pretty tough on things, so yeah. if I'm doing a, a crummy job, I'll hear about it, and I'm sure they're not afraid to can me if I'm really doing a crummy job, so I'm trying to keep things tight and, and grow the business and continue with the what they set up and and kind of the desires that they created or my dad created originally well before we get too deep into the banking part i want to talk about your tennis career tell me how that started did you play tennis as like a little kid i mean was that something that your family did yeah so my mom and dad both played and they were more recreational players and played for fun and then my older brother played and he was very talented and the game came easily to him and so I always wanted to be like my older brother and you know Blake was a great role model he's a super chill happy guy and just kind of had an ease of everything he did and so I was a grinder and work hard go spend the hours and and really you know dig into something and so I was really fortunate to have him as a role model and to watch him growing up and so it made me really want to get more and more involved in the game and and I think that that's was my biggest motivator to get into tennis and an interesting story along those lines my mom ended up hiring a coach from Houston that is a really great coach he came to Amarillo and to work with my brother but it ended up helping me a ton because he was a Russian style coach who fed millions of balls he'd feel like feed like 100 balls to start off practice you'd have to hit 100 down the line 100 cross court and so that really resonated with me because I had the work ethic that I could stay focused and I wouldn't go crazy doing something like that and and so it benefited my game tremendously because I didn't have to think and the footwork came easier and I hit a lot of balls and so the repetition was good for me. 
How, how much of that do you attribute to being like naturally talented and how much to a work ethic, you know, that grinded out mentality? Because there's a lot of people that can work really hard, but will never, you know, get to the place that you got as a pro. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I, the 10,000 hours theory, I think, is a, a good response to that. There's a book called The Sports Gene, and he talks a lot about it. And he says that, like, you've got guys that are super talented that spend no hours but they're so talented and you know there he gave an example of a basketball player that could do any dunk and the guy said hey can you jump over this and he jumped over an NCA record for a high jump the first jump yeah the and first. so he called the coach and he said hey coach I think I have something here and so the coach got him on the team he ended up winning the worlds and then ended up winning the Olympic gold and so I think that there there's certain players and you see it in any sport that are ridiculous talents but those guys don't always work hard because they're told their whole life, hey, you're really talented. It, right. You're so great. And so they get scared a lot of times and they don't lace them up and actually do the hard work and convert that into a Federer or a Sampras. Now, the ones that do take that talent and work hard, they're Federer or Sampras or, you know, the guys that end up Usain Bolt that are just on a whole nother level. I think I was on a level below. I think I was an extremely talented athlete and, and I had really good vision, which helps in tennis. And so, but I also spent the hours and, and spent lots of hours and looking back on it, spent a lot of dumb hours too, wasting time, working on things I shouldn't have been working yeah. on, overtraining, never taking a break. Cause I thought, you know, if you took a day off, that was not good. Right. So, you know, looking back on it, I've made a lot of stupid mistakes, but you know, you learn obviously the older you get, the more experience you get. When, when did you start to think, you know, in high school that tennis was something you could pursue beyond you know playing in high school sports yeah so i had a moment that was an epiphany for me where i beat a guy named bill scanlon who was yeah i think he made it to maybe top 15 in the world at one point and i beat him in this tournament in dallas called the cotton bowl and you know he was i think he had a drinking problem and he probably was not on his game but i beat him and so then i was kind of thinking to myself you know i'm not that bad i'm kind of good at this game I can play okay and how old were you at that point um I was 17 at the time and you know I'd always been good in juniors and ranked in the top in the nation and top 10 in the nation and was consistently a good junior but I never really thought oh I could play this game at another level I was more about the process and just the day-to-day and wasn't a dreamer of like hey I can do this at some point and so when I beat him it was a big deal to me and and then I think getting into Stanford and, and going to Stanford really changed my trajectory as far as becoming a pro tennis player. Tell me about the decision-making process where, you know, you came to a conclusion that you, you know, maybe were better suited as a doubles player than a singles player. I mean, what what goes into that thought process and, and that sort of decision? Well, it's funny because I have a huge chip on my shoulder about that. And so I'm going to tell you about the chip on my shoulder. Let's do it. So, you know, I was always motivated and it was not for worse some often by people saying you can't do this or you can't do that or and, and you know always I had all these people that are like you're, you're not going to be a pro tennis player you can't do it and so it it motivated me to like push hard and to try to work hard and to train harder and so in your statement on being a doubles player I played singles my whole career I never made a choice to be a doubles player I just happened to do better in doubles and so you know it was one of those deals that my whole career was based on trying to play singles and, you know, I made it to 30 in the world in singles, but I just wasn't physically, it was 
one of you know covering the whole court and and it's it's a different style of game Mm -hmm. my body i got really big and i lifted too many weights and so i would wear down really quickly in singles and and it it took a big toll on me to play and i just think that like I never quite got in singles to where I, I mean, listen, I was ha- proud of what I did, but but I never quite got to what I thought I could have done consistently. But to answer your question, I did in doubles, it just was easier for me. And you're not covering the whole court and it's not as physically demanding. So you don't, you know, have the exhaustion problems. And, and so I ended up doing better in doubles. And it wasn't like I made a decision, yeah. hey, I'm going to, Doubles is my game. This isn't working, yeah. so I'll try something yes. else. And, and the interesting thing is, you know, in, in like 95, 96, 97, I was playing really good singles, and that's when I made it to 30 in the world. And um, you couldn't play doubles because I couldn't do both. Because right. if if I was playing well in one, the other typically suffered. And so I wasn't going to have my singles suffer because I really wanted to focus on singles. And so doubles would end up suffering in that scenario. And, you know, it's hard when you're, playing 95 degree temperature and you have a singles match at 10 30 and then you come back for a doubles match at nine that night then you get to sleep and then you have to come back and roll it roll it out again the next day and so eventually one of them suffers and yeah. you know there's certain players that are kind of another level like McEnroe was he played singles and doubles all the time it didn't seem to phase him I just wasn't there physically and mentally it's tough too you know because it wears on you just the wear of playing those matches and trying to compete and trying to win it takes a, a big toll on you. You mentioned the chip on your shoulder about it. What what what's the chip? Like like well, what's so, the Well, so so they say, "Hey, you were a doubles player, right?" And I'm like, "No, I wasn't a doubles player, man. I was a singles player. I played singles my whole career. You know, I was like consistently in the top 100." So yeah. so I'm like, you know, just from my heart, it hurts me because I'm like, I played singles my whole career. Now, I wasn't that good at it. You know, and so in America, if if you're not top 5, and sometimes even top 5 guys kind of get forgotten about him. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at a guy like Roddick who made it to number one and they were like, yeah, he's an okay player and he didn't really do that much. He won the U.S. Open, you know, and, and so it's tough in the U.S. to really differentiate yourself in a sport like tennis because it's not a main sport in the first place. And then if you're cruising along at 30 in the world, nobody cares. Right. And so it's like, oh, yeah, great. You're 30 in the world. That's, that's awesome. Good job, little fella. And so it's like... But even so, I mean, people... Almost anybody can name a, a number one singles tennis player from the United States, but may not be able to say, "Oh, this is those those two guys were the number one doubles yeah, team." Yeah. I mean, it's 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 got a lower no, profile. No doubles is like you know kind of the redhead stepchild, and it's interesting because when I was on the tour, I tried to get them to promote doubles more because if you look at the public and people that play tennis, they play doubles primarily. And doubles is a lot of fun to watch. And if you've ever gone to any of these tournaments, they show singles match, singles match, singles match on stadium court. Well, in my mind, it gets a little boring and old seeing singles match, singles match, singles match. And so I promoted the idea of throwing in like their marquee doubles match. You know, like let's say that Federer and Nadal decided to play in a tournament together. And so you throw in that match against some really good doubles players, and it's a really fun match to watch. And, and so they started doing that a little bit, and it was successful. And I think that it's a good way to mix up you know, what you see. It's a much faster-paced game. You have a lot of reflex volley points. And so the normal um, tennis player who goes out and plays on the weekend, they like seeing that because they're like, oh, yeah, I, I can – I can identify with that. And, and so it's, it's fun to have it out there and, and in the mix. I, I want to ask you about your time, you know, as a pro. 
you know, a lot of kids dream of doing that, whether it's basketball or football or, or tennis. Like most dreams, I, I think there's probably places where that dream matches, you know, what they think it's going to be and other places where it's kind of a disappointment. And, yes. and as a kid who grew up in Amarillo, who's from this area and who saw that dream, you know, come true, what were some of the things that you really liked about being out on tour and some of the things that you're like, oh, man, I, I should have yeah. stayed home and worked cattle? That's a great question. And, and so as a young kid, I was super arrogant and like I was going to kill everyone. Because no, you're a talented athlete, you know? Yeah, I, I and mean, so you had to kind of almost believe that too. If you didn't and you started looking around saying, oh, these guys are good, then you're in big trouble. And that's when I quit. When I started looking around and I was like, these guys are really good. And it's like, I better quit. Because, yeah. you know, you can't go out there thinking that they're better than you are. And so anyway, back to your, your question, looking at it, the fascinating part to me is I got to see the whole world. And I got to travel around and see all these different cultures. And, you know, when I would lose, I would go to museums and, and visit art museums. And, and I was really into that and, and just seeing what's going on in the city. And, mm-hmm. and I made a lot of friends in these different cities around the world. And so that part of it was awesome and, and was amazing because you're young and you're getting to learn about the world. And I remember I was super judgmental when I would first go to these places like, oh, the Germans, their music's terrible. They're so serious. Like the English are so into their rules. And then you get older and you start to realize like it's so great about them. And it's so much fun. And like you, you see these cultures and and their uniqueness and their values. And you begin to cherish those values because they kind of had this unique side to them. And back then there was the, the internet wasn't big and so you had to read a lot and so I read a lot of books and and you had to go out and try to learn about the world just by experiencing the world and so even within the U.S. you had all these little subdivisions of cultures you know like in the south and in the northeast and that that you've never seen in your life before and and they were very distinct and and very unique and very different and and so I got to see all that firsthand and that was awesome it was amazing now the negative side I would say you're playing 36 weeks out of the year right and so you are grinding and you're on the road i try i would try to limit it to four to five weeks at a time and then take a break Mm -hmm. and but if you're playing well and then you get into some other tournaments you're kind of like do i forego those tournaments or do i take that opportunity you're always having to look at your schedule and figure out how do i schedule this what's my ranking what tournament can i get into and so it's a constant grind of trying to figure out how do I stay fresh but then how do I play as many tournaments as I can and I mean I can't I have so many stories about you know flying from Caracas Venezuela to Paris France and then Air France is on strike and I'm supposed to be at this tournament first thing in the morning and and so I show up and they're like oh you can catch overnight train so I carry my bags to the train through the you know metro and show up at the train station the train's pulling away so I've got my bags, and I'm supposed to play the next morning. And so I'm, they're like, oh, there's an overnight train you can take. It's great. You have your own sleeper car. So I get my own sleeper car. But there's like six people in my car with me. They pick me up in the at 6 a.m. the next morning from the train. I go to, straight to the courts. I lose 6-3, 6-3, yeah. and then I'm back. You're expected to perform you know, at a high athletic level after all this travel, after the jet lag, <laughs> after all the frustration. I mean, that, there's nothing that's ideal about that. Yeah, so, so it's like it's almost like a comedy. And, and there were times where you know I just wanted to – throw everything down and cry and break all my rackets and then there were times where I was like oh I'm on top of the world like I'm doing yeah. this and so you had to try to have some equanimity and looking at everything and, and analyzing your situation and take it for what it is and and so I tried to do that but when you're young and traveling around the world and you think you have it the world in your palm of your hand it's hard to have equanimity and so I you know try had to learn patience and 
and you know also the matches when you play these matches you would be third on after 10 so you never knew exactly when you were going to play so you had to eat and you know yeah. kind of adjust your schedule based off of when you thought you were going to play maybe some guy gets hurt and so then you're second on and so then that moves everything up and and i think that's shaped a lot of my attitude of not really being so intense on having to have things perfectly in order you know i'm okay with with a little chaos and but it you know there's there was so much more good than bad and and looking back on it i feel so lucky to have gotten a chance to have done it for 10 years even to have played pro tennis because Mm -hmm. at the time like i said i was like, I'm going to do this, you know, it's no big deal. But now looking back, I'm like, wow, I was lucky to get a chance to meet those people. And I made tons of great friends. We just went to a reunion deal in London, you know, watching the world finals and talked to all my old buddies. And that was really fun and nostalgic and just seeing what they're doing and what they're up to. So, I mean, I, I all in all, I'd, I'd say, you know, two thumbs up and I feel lucky that I got to do it. Okay. I'd, I'd like to know a little bit about your mindset as you were playing, because, you know, even somebody like Serena Williams will have all the success, but like, she's going to have to stop at some point, And then she'll have a life after tennis. Were you going through all of that, you know, that 10 years thinking, okay, I've got to be prepared for something when this is done. I mean, what was your thought process in that, in that realm? You know, that's, it's a great question. And I have, and I've always been about the process and about living in the moment. And now that's not to say that I don't set goals or don't think out in front of me, but I've been more about like, okay, here's what I can do now. And here's the things that I can attack today. And here's how I can improve the pieces of the puzzle. And so until the end of my career, I was always really focused on the process and wasn't really thinking ahead to like, oh crap, you know, which is probably nice in a way because it, if I would have thought ahead and then I may have been a little more panicked of like, Oh man, what am I going to do? But I tried to keep it more about the process and, and still trying to improve even towards the end of my career. And so I never really looked that far in advance to think like, Oh man, now when I knew that the U S open was my last tournament and you know, that was a very emotional time. And, but I, even then I wasn't thinking like, what am I going to do? Or, you know, how am I going to support myself? I was, more thinking of, wow, that was, you know, crazy that this is the end. And, and it was very emotional for me. But then once I finished the U S open, then I had to take a real look, you know, hard look and just say, okay, where can I add value? Mm -hmm. What's my skill set? What did I learn in school? What have I learned from business so far? And where can I kind of add value to this pie? And so then that's when I really started to look at it. Do you remember making a decision and Serena by the way doesn't have to worry about it wow. <laughs> she probably does not has she if but she's been smart with her money she's yeah. probably okay yeah but she has um so tell me about like did you ever think I'm always going to end up back in Amarillo or was that like a thought process where you I mean you could have gone to live anywhere and, and done anything so how did you go through the the thinking about where you would end up I moved to Los Angeles in the middle of my tennis career and it's a great place to live and a really fun place and a lot of healthy people. And, and I was young at the time. And so it was really fun and it was perfect for training for tennis because the weather was so nice. You could fly anywhere in the world out of LAX. So it was a real easy place and a real logical place. Um, I married Meg and I think we had so much fun together out there, but when we had our daughter, um, when we had Laurel, we both, kind of and it was more maybe me saying hey you know I don't know if I can go through the rat race but I think she was 
in agreement on that front. And so I just felt like it would be a good move for us and a, and a wise move to come back to Amarillo. And, you know, I was really involved with the bank at the time and helping with run the bank and on the board of the bank. And, and I really was passionate about the bank. And so it was a real logical step for me to move back. And it was, a, and I'm not going to say it wasn't a really hard transition because it was a hard transition for me because coming from a big city with, you know, tons of craziness and culture and, you know, basketball games and art museums and, you know, everything right in front of you mm-hmm. to a slower lifestyle. It really took me a long time to get into the cadence, but I'm really into the cadence right now and, and sort of our banks even celebrating our culture and the panhandle and, you know, what we're about and trying to really look at that and, and analyze that in more of a place of a spirit and a soul and a consciousness of, hey, you know, this is a really beautiful, wonderful part of the world and we should celebrate that and, and really embrace it because it, is, it really is. And we have a lot of great things to offer and it's a wonderful place for a family. So my kids love it. I mean, we were in LA, you know, we were in California for a couple of weeks in July and, and they both are like, hey, let's, I'm ready to get back. Yeah. And so that's cool, you know, when your kids really enjoy it. And, and it was, you could tell they meant it from their heart. And so as a parent, that's, you just want your, your family and your gang to be happy. And yeah, so yeah. it was nice. I want to talk about the bank a little bit because, you know, people, people who live here, you know, Amarillo's banking culture is dominated by really big local banks like A&B or like Happy State Bank. You know, tell me about the role that a bank like yours plays, because it has its it, it has its own importance, you know, within that whole ecosystem. So tell me a little bit about that history and, and sort of what you've carved out here. Yeah, absolutely. So our bank is a it's a very unique bank. We've programmed our own, our own software. And so it gives us a big advantage to adapt in today's environment. And so all we're trying to do is make systems that are super transparent and very easy for our customers to follow. We have the ability to go in and sign up for an account online. We have the ability to go in and apply for a loan online for a commercial loan and then upload all your documents that we request on a secure portal and then sign everything through our proprietary electronic signature system. So we're, we're a tiny bank and we, Nobody even knows we exist right now, but we're trying to kind of find our spirit and our soul and and trying to put that out there for people to try us. And we look at ourselves as more of a utility bank because we're small right now. And so we have to be nimble mm-hmm. and be able to adapt. And, and, you know, if somebody comes in and says, hey, I need this loan done in three days, we can get it cranked out in three days. We don't have the big bureaucracy of the bigger banks. And, and so we still have kind of a spirit of we're a small bank that really cares about our customers and and we really roll out the red carpet to our customers on all fronts, on loans, on deposits. And, and because, you know, the size of our bank is small, but because of our technology, we're able to not have as big as, of a staff as a typical bank our size, which means we can pass along those savings to our customers through better rates on deposits and better rates on loans. And, and if you look at kids these days, banking is going that direction. They don't want right. to go into a bank branch. And so we really believe that all that overhead of all those bank branches on every corner. If you go in and you look at those bank branches at two o'clock in the afternoon, there's not a lot going on. And so we think that if we can make this phone a place where you can bank, where you can get your stuff done, where it's real transparent on what you're doing, you can pay your friend and it's all free. um, We believe that that model will win out in the end. And so 
we're trying to keep our heads down and, and, you know, we're, we know that we're non-existent in the whole scheme of things, but we're trying to just plug away and, and more back to what I was saying about the process. We're trying to shore up all of our holes and make sure that we have real clean, good systems. And then we're going to do some marketing and, and slowly get the word out and say, Hey, give us a try. You know, if you like us, we'd love to do more business with you. And, and we're slowly picking off some customers that like a quieter bank that's not, you know, the big bank in the, in town. And so we're chipping away. We're not, you know, we're not killing the world by any means, but we're, I, we, we have a great team and everyone on this team has embraced the spirit of this bank. And so I think that if we can continue in this vein, we're, we're going to do some good and we are doing some good right now and we have mm-hmm. a lot of great customers, but we'll kind of maybe get a little more you know, present in the, in the Amarillo scene. Tell me about the history of BOC Bank, because I, you know, it's a, it's a small bank. Um, it may be one that not everybody has heard of, but that doesn't mean it's brand new. So tell me about, you know, sort of how it ended up, what it is today. Yeah. So my dad is a, is a cattle guy and we talked about that a little bit earlier and, and, but he's really a technology guy. He, um, he built this technology company that's masquerading as a cattle company and he did it way back when the internet started. I remember when I was 16 i was in the basement hitting control alt f6 to type my paper on the univac you know this giant computer that was like you know and i I was looking at him like you're an idiot man like why are why am i typing my paper on this i can just write it on paper and so he's always embraced technology from the start and he built this cattle company around technology and so he has all these systems that analyze his feed yards analyze the feed that the cattle are given and he also built an accounting system that, that integrated with this cattle software package. And so the one thing that was missing is the banks were holding his money for a couple of days and he didn't like that. And so he's like, I'm just going to get a bank. And, and so he was part of um, First National Bank and he was trying to get Don Powell convinced to do it. But Don had bigger fish on his plate at the time. And so he decided to buy a small bank in McLean, Texas and program it. And, and he did. And and. I was fortunate enough to, he allowed me to buy in on the bank at the same time and was on the board from the start and got to see this process from the start. And so he programmed a really cool bank and was very forward thinking in that. And so, you know, my role came in in helping to grow the bank because the bank was sort of sitting there not doing a whole lot. Right. And it was wonderful for his company because he could integrate the accounting package with the payment package and with the cattle package and so it was a, a great fit for him but he didn't have time to go out and market it and so that's where I stepped in after my tennis career and tried to add some value and and you know with no formal training now I ended up going to SMU banking school for three years it's a three-year program that they have and then I also went to um, Texas Tech banking school and tried to kind of brush up on there's no substitute for running the bank yeah and being in there in the day-to-day but they, they were great schools and both were extremely helpful and you know i learned a lot at both of them now that you're operating a small bank in in amarillo with a lot of technology you know a lot of an entrepreneurial spirit about it tell me tell me what you've sort of discovered you know being back in amarillo running a business here about sort of where the city is right now? Because we've got a lot of entrepreneurship. We've got a lot of businesses. We've got a lot of people looking toward the future and growth. I mean, do you see that same sort of thing happening? Yeah, I feel a a real spirit in this town. And if you look at downtown and, you know, I think Beth Duke deserves a lot of credit with that. And, you know, 
you look at the growth in this this town and the spirit it feels like there's a there's a real spirit and and there's a lot of energy and and it, it, it does feel it feels nice you know my one complaint with Amarillo is a lot of times you feel like everyone's on their last leg. It's like, you know, and it's like, Hey, you know, things are fine. Like, let's go. And I feel that spirit now and you feel that energy and it's fun to feel that. And it's fun to walk around downtown and see like young kids cruising around and see all these businesses thriving and, and, and to hear about these different entrepreneurial, you know, operations that are getting out there and getting after it to hear about the community that's being developed downtown with the the people living downtown mm-hmm. and, and with, you know, more multifamily type situations or even apartments or condos being built and even and, right down the street, like yeah. at the Firestone. I mean, yeah. you're not far from that epicenter. Absolutely. And so I think that that's contagious and you feel that energy and I'm sure you see it a lot. It just feels nice as a business owner and as a, as a person that believes in Amarillo to see that and, and to see the community getting behind it and to see everyone kind of stepping their level up. It just, it's cool. It makes you feel like, hey, we're, we're going to do this thing. So it's neat to be a part of that. Okay, so this space is typically used for a sponsor message, but this week I've got something else for you. Maybe it's a little bit of editorializing. At, at any rate, it's not a paid ad. But last week, the city of Amarillo unveiled a proposal to build a new, modern, state-of-the-art civic center complex in downtown Amarillo. It includes renovating the existing space and then expanding, building new structures, including a new 10,000-seat arena. It's a big, big project. And it also has a big price tag, which will be put to a bond issue vote in May of 2020. Now, two things I want you to know about this. First, they're asking for public feedback, and I think that's super important. And there are public feedback forums scheduled for this Saturday, September 14th at 8.30 a.m. at the Civic Center. Also Thursday the 19th at 1 and 5.30 p.m. and Saturday the 21st at 8.30 a.m. All of these are at the Civic Center Hospitality Room near Entrance 7. If you're interested in the details, if you want to ask questions, if you want to give your feedback, go to one of these forums. They want to hear from citizens. Second, guests on this show talk all the time about quality of life in Amarillo, about bringing more concerts to Amarillo, about bringing more events and shows to the city, about improving kids' sports or convincing young people to stay here, to not leave and go somewhere else. All that is a quality of life kind of thing. And this project, more than almost anything that we've done since building the very first Civic Center, will improve the quality of life in Amarillo. It would transform downtown. It would go a long way toward doing all these things, the concerts, the sporting events, all that stuff. It's a decision that we'll be making next year that the next generation of residents, maybe my own kids, will benefit from. So I I want to make sure you know about it. I want to make sure that you get all the information. Um, If you're interested in this project, go to one of the forums or visit conversationciviccenter.com. Again, nobody's paying me for this ad, but it is something I care about and I want you to know about it. Okay, I'm back with Alex O'Brien. Alex, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in as much detail as you want to. Um, So we'll start with this one. What's the most underrated aspect of living in Amarillo? Well, I talked about this a little bit earlier. I think that it's an amazing place for a family. And 
I drive five minutes to work, and, yeah. and I mean, you can't beat that. You can't do that it's in just, L.A. No, for sure. No, and so it's just, it's really awesome because even with the sports and with the activities, I talked to my sister who lives in Austin, and, and she's in the car from the minute school gets out till, you know, 7.30, and, and it's it's a tough grind, and I think that there's something wonderful about being able to coach your kids soccer team or being that close to your house that you can cruise home and hang out with your family and really get to know your kids. And, and so that's been a, I've loved that aspect of it. Okay. I I think a lot of people would, would agree with that. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? I think that Harrison street is a fascinating street as far as the history and the architectural integrity of the houses on that street. I'm really big into home architecture and, Mm -hmm. and, I just love those. Those houses are so pretty, and they're so classically lined. And, right. and there's something wonderful about driving down that street, and and you could almost get a glimpse back into the history of Amarillo and when they originally built houses. And I think the downtown is somewhat similar with some of those beautiful buildings downtown, like the Santa Fe building. And right, and, some of that yeah, 1920s, 1930s yes. architecture. Yeah, that's just amazing architecture and and it gets me excited when I see buildings like that, that you can tell they spend a lot of time thinking about the details of it and making sure the integrity of the architecture is there. And so that's a long winded answer. Cool. No, Harrison street though. That definitely, that's a good street. What does this area have too much of? I think fast food restaurants. I, I would love to have more mom and pop style restaurants where you go in and the owners are in there and, and I feel like we have a lot of fast food chain type restaurants that end up maybe, you know, a little aggressive on that side. Yeah, I think that's true. There are so many great restaurants in Amarillo owned by local people. And I still run into people where, where I'll mention a restaurant that you know, I've just always gone to. And they're like, I've never heard of that place, you know, yeah. but they'll stop at a Taco Villa, yeah. you know, or a, a Sonic or something, you know, on the way there, just never go that extra block, you know, to find something local. That's an interesting point. And maybe it, it's almost like we need an underground for restaurants, for, for mom and pop restaurants that that's like a list of, hey, here are my favorite mom and pop restaurants. Yeah, here's here's yeah. where to go. And, yeah, uh, yeah that's, a good, that's a good point. To skip the fast food. That's a good point. What does this area not have enough of? So I would say on that one, I'm a big fan of the arts and... And I think that if we could add more arts downtown and and maybe bring more artists downtown and put in more sculptors Mm -hmm. and, you know, and just build that part of it. I think that that part and and Oklahoma City seemed to have done a really good job with that, with their downtown project. Right. And and I think that that brings more restaurants, brings more people and the artists are a, like, I just love art and love artists and, and like that vibe and that creative energy. And, and I think that if we continue to, and I think we're working on it yeah, I think it's, it's getting there. It's happening. It's happening. But, but if we, but could it's a process. That, yeah. And, and if we could maybe, you know, put that on the agenda of, Hey, how can we push this even more? I think that would be a big, big bonus for us. Okay. How do you describe the city to people outside the area? Now, I know you probably were meeting people all the time as a pro, and you're like, I'm from Amarillo, Texas, and they'd never heard of it, you know, or... Wide it, open spaces. Yeah, I mean, is that what you tell them? Is that yeah, what you I say? Think, I think that it's a, it's a very unique place. It's very beautiful in its own right. And if you look at the, the plains and you watch when these thunderstorms roll in, it's, I think it's amazing. Palo Canyon is amazing. 
we've got some ranches that that private ranch owners own that are just incredible and you go out to some of these ranches and you see the the beauty of the landscape and it's it's really unique you know there are a lot of city slickers that would love to come and hang out and, yeah. and check it out and see something that's you know completely different from what they've seen their whole lives what's your you know we we talked about the the mom and pop restaurants what's your favorite local restaurant ohms is my go-to okay and, uh, i eat there probably three or four times a week at lunch and then maybe dinner once a week or something. And I think all those guys over there, you know, Mary, Leslie, and Josh do an incredible job. They're there every time you go. They're really paying attention to the quality that's put out, and they consistently put out just an, an amazing product, and I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm glad you call it Ohms because I grew up referring yeah. to it as Ohms, and I think, like, our yes, generation O-H-M-S did. But, like, is, yeah, younger people call it yeah. OHMS. Yeah. And so I'm always like, well, it's really Ohms, but you can call it that if you want to. Is but. it on Her Majesty's service? Yeah, that's what it, yeah. it comes from. And I've never heard, you know, specifically from the Fuller family what they prefer. Yeah. You know, I've never asked yeah. them. But, yeah, yeah. OHMS. OHMS. I like it. I like, well, I need to adapt. I don't know. I don't know if, if it's cool one way or not i i say it the way that i grew up uh-huh. um what's your favorite local coffee shop so i'm not a i'm not a coffee drinker so i don't really have a good comment on that i i uh i wish i did and i've heard there are a lot of great coffee you know joints in town and so i'm not i'm gonna i'm gonna pass on just that pass. One just you don't, you don't just, go to any of them to get tea or anything like no, that no i don't and it's i'm not a real tea or coffee drinker so it's kind of pathetic i don't have that in my repertoire but i know okay. it's a pretty big part of everyone's day but i i haven't gotten that one okay i'll let you off the hook okay, on that one. all right then. thank you and you mentioned paladuro canyon when's the last time you went to visit paladuro canyon so my family we were members at the Paladura Club. Okay. So I kind of feel like that's a, an extension it's a, it's of, the, part of, the, of canyon, the canyon. Yeah. And so we spend quite a bit of time down there and we love it. And we love the, the waking up in the mornings and going on a, you know, a, a sunrise hike and, and just being down in the canyon. And you really feel like you're at one with, with nature and with the world. And there's something real spiritual about it. And I think that that canyon, just the views and the beauty are, are majestic and you know anyone who doesn't spend time down there i, I feel yeah. like they're missing out my my one idea would be is i think the park should put a little canyon rim restaurant that would that would sit on the edge of the canyon and i think that would be an amazing idea and i think you would get tons of people that would have weddings oh sure you know, and just to see that view and and to sit up there and watch the sunset and mm-hmm. is is really a thing of beauty well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned the Paladura Club because people tend to think of the canyon as the state park. And, you know, we, we forget that Paladura Club or Cedar Glen, Cedar Canyon, or, you know, out by Claude, like that's all part of the same system. You know, it's all the same canyon. Yeah, it's a massive canyon, and it, and it really does cover a lot of grounds. And, and a buddy of mine, he buys ranches and redevelops, redevelops the ranches and then, and then sells them. And he bought one kind of overlooking the other side of the canyon, like you were saying, from, from the Paladura Club side and, and even from where you enter the park. And, man, it is amazing how many beautiful views there are surrounding this canyon and how big it is. Yeah. You're right on that. Okay, so Alex, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So what's, what's one thing that you would want local people to know about or to experience? So through my foundation, through the Alex O'Brien Tennis Foundation, we've really been pushing hard to get um, middle school tennis 
um, in the middle schools and, and a lot of the, a lot of the coaches, the high school coaches have been amazing with helping with this. And then the, the school board has been amazing with being receptive and helping get it going as well. And, and so we now have eighth grade tennis starting this okay. year, which is awesome. And it's, and I'm so excited about it. And the one thing that I think would be a big deal is to maybe get the seventh graders also included so that you kind of have the full package and, and get these high school coaches more kids that are ready to kind of feed into the, right. the high school. So tennis. they have that that competitive experience, yes. you know, going into high school that, you know, yes. that otherwise they're just kind of thrown to the wolves and, yeah, and now you tennis, have to play people. Tennis is very technical and, and the footwork and the shot production and the strokes. If you learn it at a later age, it's harder to compete against guys that have been doing it their whole life. So the earlier we can expose kids to it and we've gotten a pretty good, some pretty good programs with our partners, Kids Inc. and, and some of the schools around town where we've gotten a lot of kids exposed to tennis. And I think the next step is if we can keep that kind of that stream where they're younger and then they go to middle school and then they go to high school it, it really makes it a fluid process and so it's been fun trying to figure this one out and we're really close on it and the fact that eighth graders are, are starting this year is super exciting and if we can get the seventh graders also involved that would be more exciting great well alex o'brien thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast yeah no i really appreciate it and congrats on your show and, and thanks for including me absolutely and that concludes the show. First, thanks to Dr. Eddie Sauer and to SKP Creative for sponsoring this episode. And thanks to Alex O'Brien for the interview. As usual, Angelina Marie edited this one. And, you know, I've heard from a number of people recently that they appreciate how professional Hey Amarillo sounds, like just as a podcast. That's her doing. So good job. And thanks to those of you who said something. Finally, uh, I want to express my appreciation to my executive producers, Chriselda, Jason Burr, Wilson Lemieux, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Katie Linger, Daniel Davis, Josh Wood, Neil Nossiman, Patrick Burns, Ryan Pennington, and Wes Reeves. All those people support this show on a monthly basis through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. You can support it too. There's a variety of different support levels. I'd love for you to go and check it out and see how you can be a part of making this podcast every week. Thank you for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.